0: Hey gang. It is, uh, God, I gotta fix my watch. It is Wednesday, October 7th, 2015. Some promotional malpractice live chat. Uh, today on the podcast, we will talk about, of course, what else? TJ Dillashaw, UFC bantamweight champion, leaving team alpha male and joining uh, elevation fight team out in Colorado under the auspices of the muscle form facility. And I think the company as well. Um, we'll get to that. <clears throat> in addition to uh, that, Conor McGregor's statements about it, which have been totally overblown, but uh, be that as it may. UFC 192 is still just a few days behind us. Uh, we'll get to some of the results and like significances, significance of some of the events that happened. Uh, Rampage Jackson uh, saying some interesting things. Uh, more recently, both first on Ariel's show on Monday, and then I think someone told me he said some crazy things last night as well, so um, a lot to get to, and the best place to do that, of course, is on MMAfighting.com. Uh, so, thank you for joining me. Comments that turn green get the most priority, but not exclusive priority. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas and um, a bunch of good stuff. A couple of housekeeping notes. So, sorry, I got some food in my mouth. I'm going to New York tomorrow. There's an MMA beat. And um, afterwards, I am getting my equipment, allegedly, for this chat and the Monday Morning Analyst. Which includes a backdrop, lighting, microphone, camera, the works. Like a whole new setup. Because to date, I've just been using like a webcam you can just buy at um, Best Buy and a microphone that a reader sent in. Literally, the lighting I paid for myself, but um, you get the idea. So the double doors. It should be knock on wood. This should be the last one. I think. I hope. God help me. Um, we'll see. So that that is happening tomorrow. Okay. Um, Oh, and by the way, don't forget about the podcast, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice, all one word, because it's a URL. So let's get to the uh, questions here. One quick note, um, just on a whim, I reached out to UFC about Francisco Trevino. You may recall Mr. Trevino fought Sage Northcutt at UFC 192, and at UFC 192, he lost, and uh, when the fight was stopped, he shoved the referee. And as you know, uh, a few years ago, or maybe a couple of years ago, whatever the case may be, Jason High shoved Rafael Dos Anjos after he, or excuse me, shoved the referee after losing to Rafael Dos Anjos at a UFC bout and was immediately cut. And um, so I asked the UFC what their, plan, what their plan was. And what they told me was they were basically waiting for um, – the commission to act and there was no really there was no they didn't provide comment um uh, but that was basically what i was told so there was no comment officially there was just that so you, just to comment on what they're saying again they didn't provide official comment they just basically said um you know ufc is basically going to be waiting to see what the commission does to before they make any dis- disciplinary act which means they may make one they may not make one they may add one on top of what he got i don't know what it means exactly it could end up that the punishment is as harsh or harsher in the end, the debate would change. Some might say, well, that's cold comfort for Jason high to which I would agree. However, what happened to Jason high was a mistake. I mean, you could say that there should be some punishment that was exacted, but that, you know, Dana white came out and publicly said that they, that he was cutting him and hadn't even seen the footage. Didn't need to see the footage. Um, this is an inconsistent following of what had happened to Jason high, but, that was not the right way to handle it. I think the right way to handle is, at least so far, it seems, this way, right? Waiting to see what the commission does, if their punishment is severe enough, just sort of letting it go, uh, or if they don't want to do anything, maybe adding on something to that, or maybe maybe he gets hit both ways. I don't know. But I think the one difference so far that's worth noting is that they're not going to immediately cut him, it seems. They might end up cutting him, but they're not going to immediately cut him without looking at the footage. I think They're going to wait for some commission direction which is probably uh, a good place to start. Okay. Um. All right. There's this confusion early on in this post. So that's up with Francisco Trevino. Moving on. Uh, Look, how many PEDs do you know USADA is not testing for and is hcg on the testing list testing list is available online you can see what they test for uh how many cases or areas do you know where a prohibition has actually worked um well if we're asking has prohibition in sports where there is strict testing has that eliminated usage the answer is of course no the question is has it reduced usage um and to that i don't have a complete answer for you unfortunately I have certainly some suspicions. You see that like the BBC study that study that they commissioned, but that they had reported on about testing and long distance running or, um, drug use performance enhancing drug use and long distance running. It was like or track and field. Generally, it was like out of control. And this was, you know, these are sports that are, you know, relative to what the UFC had been previously tightly regulated. Um, Is there any sport USADA made cleaner? It's a good question. Um, has cycling been cleaned up? I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. These are good questions, and I unfortunately don't have very good answers for you. But I'm going to make a note here. I'm going to wreck this. And I'm going to make a note. I need to follow up on this. All right. Good question. Uh, Fedor's legacy. Can we really call Fedor the greatest if he's going to fight someone with a 1-0 MMA record? Does this hurt his legacy? Um, oh, and by the way, I didn't even do this. Jeez Louise, man. Coke Zero is the uh, drink of choice. And the statement today, alum. Sort of a stupid one, right? Alum. Did you go to a place and graduate from it? Coke Zero is my preferred um, diet soda for drinking alcoholic beverages. Well, I mean, if they're good enough, I just put ice in them. But if I'm drinking trash like Jim Beam, I like to use Coke Zero. Coke Zero and Beam, my boss knows this. Coke Zero and Beam is my favorite combination because um, they both taste like garbage. Together, if you put enough ice in it, you can basically swallow it. And uh, what's good about diet drinks is the science is sort of still fuzzy to me, but Scientific American put out an article uh, in the last few years suggesting that they're the, the way that, um, that basically if you use diet sodas when you consume alcohol, it helps with absor- absorption quicker. Uh, obviously, some, whatever sort of chemicals are in diet versus regular soda uh, make that possible. So I use diet sodas when I'm drinking cocktails if they am drinking cheap cocktails. If I'm drinking something nice, I don't. But if I'm drinking Jim Beam just trying to get hammered, I like to use Coke Zero. Diet Coke, if that's all that's available, because it helps you get hammered faster. I don't have a drinking problem, I don't think. <laughs> all right. Someone says, uh, cycling is probably cleaner. The average speed, uh, for example, in the Tour de France has certainly dropped significantly since the introduction of blood passports. Um, That seems like a reasonable conclusion. All right, so back to Fedor. uh, This is an interesting question. So first of all, people have asked me over and over on Twitter, is this the guy who you had been told would be fighting Fedor? No. No. And I'm glad I didn't report it because A, I didn't have a second source. I only had one really. Um, and it was a good one, I thought, but now I'm wondering if I got lied to or if they were misinformed. Who knows? I need to sort of figure that out. But um either way, it just seemed too good to be true, or too crazy anyway. And so now I'm at a point where it's like, okay, clearly, clearly that was too good to be or too crazy to be true. Um, with this particular circumstance. It's interesting to me because my initial instinct was to say, with um, with um, Jai Deep Singh, it his legacy is already written, right? Everything he did in Pride, there was less achievement in Strike Force, but you get the idea. Things he had done in Rings, for example, um, and so forth. And so that was already the established body of work that he had produced, even with some of the you know, the shortfalls in Strikeforce against Dan Henderson and against Verdum and against Bigfoot Silva. Really, I think of all the losses, the Bigfoot Silva to me stands out just because it was so dominant. You know? um, but then he retired. And he retired on a win streak you know, by beating people who were also you know, basically long past their prime or weren't up to par and then he retired and then he comes back. And so folks were saying, you know, if he can get up there and he can fight, let's say, Arlovski in the UFC, he can add to his legacy. It's an interesting debate because the question is this. We all are assuming he's going to beat this guy, but let's say he doesn't. Does that hurt his legacy? In other words, the question is, do you look at his body of work up until retirement as the real Fedor? body of work, or do you have to take a step back and you have to say, well, imagine there's no retirement, and we just looked at his sheet on Wikipedia, resume to resume, what would it tell you? I don't know that looking at it that way is the most scientific way to look at it. I guess what I'm just trying to say is there are some people who are going to look at these additional fights he takes, be it this one and however many more he takes, as some sort of uh, affirmation of a previous narrative about him being a can crusher or um, avoiding the tougher fights. When really, in his prime, he fought all the best guys uh, that he could. Um, I guess you could say he went to Strike Force instead of UFC. I'm not sure that was a, f- a prime fade, or I kind of feel like he fell off a little bit early. But okay, you can make that argument, too, that maybe the latter stage was prime. He didn't fight necessarily all the best guys. Although he fought Verdum, and we all know how good Verdum is. And then he fought uh, Arlovsky, and he beat him, and, and so forth. And that was Arlovsky that was coming off that Rothwell win and looking good, too, you know. Um it's a complicated debate. I think that if he wins, it doesn't really affect his legacy. Um I think if he loses it affects it. But I guess what I would say is um as the sport continues to develop and the chal- heavyweight's still thin and the challenges continue to grow and accumulate and become, you know, it's it's harder to win in heavyweight now I think than it used to be. Then I think his record will begin to look like hoist graces now hear me out i am not saying they will be identical i'm not saying that um they'll be worth the same but i guess when you go back and you look at hoist Gracie's record you'd say this isn't these are amazing achievements for the time in which he competed i guess i guess the thing that he misses by not competing now is you know a dash of modernity to everything like you know a contemporary level of achievement which is frankly a, a bit harder to come by you know the mark hunt that he fought in pride is not the mark hunt of today even in his advanced age, it's not the Mark Hunt of today. Mark Hunt is is is, incontestably better, and so I think that's I think that's the risk that he runs. He winds up looking like yes, you have an impressive body of work. Look like what you did in rings, um, you know. If you can quibble about the Arona fight, but okay. And then in Pride, obviously, you know, just an incredible run in Pride, and then after that, you know, uh, Affliction went, uh, pretty well beating Tim Sylvia and, 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 uh, what you call it and, uh, so forth. Um, and Arlovsky, but I think what winds up happening is his record begins to just look dated, you know, dated in a way where you can quantify those achievements as relevant to the time at which he, co- he competed, but ultimately seemingly distant from the modern standard of achievement, which opens, which doesn't make him not the greatest, but it, what it does do, automatically anyway, but I think what it does do is it allows someone in a more modern context to easily surpass it. You know, if Verdoom can beat Velasquez in a rematch and then can beat Dos Santos in a rematch, man, you have a hard time not picking that guy, you know? You have a real hard time not picking that guy because I would definitely pick Verdum in a rematch with Fedor even with Fedor sort of understanding tactically that maybe going to the ground with Verdum is not the best idea. You know, because Verdum's already beaten Noguera um, and he already beat Velazquez. These are two of the great heavyweights ever in mixed martial arts, literally. You know, if he can avenge the loss and he, beat, and he beat Fedor, and, you know, if he can avenge the loss to Dos Santos and sort of establish himself as the belt holder, I think it opens the door. So that that's the difference for me. It's like Verdum started later in MMA than... Fedor did. Um, so the fact that he's still around, even at his advanced age, is not all that surprising necessarily. But the, to me, that, that's not so much the issue that they bracketed at different times. It's that, it's that Verdum is winning at a super high level in the modern context. You know, there was no Cain Velasquez when Fedor fought in pride. No one of that level or ability. You know, that's the, that's the problem of the sport at the time. But they just didn't exist. So for Verdun to beat a guy like that now, it, it just tells you a lot, you know. That, I think that is the difference for me, you know. Um, but beating all these guys that he's largely expected to beat, I don't think, it, I don't think that in and of itself hurts it. I just think that he is defining himself. He is attaching his legacy and his accomplishments to a moment in time. And, and to an extent, Verdun is doing that as well. But his is an advanced time with an advanced level of competition. And that makes the debate, I think, as time goes on, A little bit easier to hash out all right so let's just get to it the big story of the week uh tj dillashaw moving to a new team luke what do you know about tj moving to the new team in colorado and what are your thoughts on this move and why it happened so someone notes in the comments correctly tj was on the stud radio show i guess that's team alpha males like official podcast and explained it pretty well, and then Ramundi has an article up on it now. So we've covered that a little bit. It's on MMAfighting.com if you want some background. I encourage you to check out Dillashaw's comments uh, on the podcast. I guess I have a few things to say about it. Um, Sort of working from McGregor backwards, you know, just because that's the most prevalent thing. I frankly find the suggestion that what, like, look, McGregor's going to say what he's going to say, He's going to believe what he's going to believe. He is an elite prize fighter in his prime at the, you know, close to the peak earning potential of his life. He's a young man in his twenties. He's going to believe a lot of things that are not justifiable things that I'm sure in 10 years, he won't believe. Um, You know, certainly he has, I think, surrounded himself with a good team, but everyone is going to experience a measure of tragedy or setback or Something and he just, ha- I don't think there's a lot that he's tasted yet, only because he hasn't been on the planet long enough, right? I mean, he's had hardship for sure prior to prize fighting. I mean, in the context of his professional prize fighting career at the elite level, something as bad is going to happen because if something bad happens to everybody, and not that I'm wishing it on him, I would never wish it, but it's just inevitable, it will run into you, you know. Okay, so there's that, but he's going to say what he wants to say, and he's going to believe what he wants to believe, and I think for him. For McGregor, the idea of leaving SBG seems like insane to him. Remember that McGregor had trained there a bit and had sort of like not washed out, but sort of kind of quit uh, MMA. And it was John Kavanaugh who reached out to him and brought him back. And I think that fundamentally changed his life. Like they have a bond that is that is incredibly deep and they're together leading the charge for Ireland. There are a lot of fronts that they have uniting them. That is very rare in in martial arts and prize fighting generally. So, of course, he's going to say, yes, you can bring in guys to your camp. And, yes, you know, if you want to go train for a month somewhere off time, you know, go down to, I don't know, Japan and learn judo at the Kodokan, who would who would object to such a thing? But generally speaking, you know, this is your home, and this will always be your home. And I can understand why he would say that, truly. It make, it make, that makes complete sense to me. But McGregor's reality is not everyone's reality. And to try and paste your ethics onto the myriad totally undulating, uh, path that everyone takes in life with all of the unique contours that it has, you know, it it just doesn't work. It simply does not work. Your life is not like my life. And there are some similarities and some overlaps or some lessons to be learned. Um, but he said something, I guess, when they had the discussion about Dillashaw, whether he was—and this is a famous phrase—was he was a snake in the grass? I find that to be, a, you know, a ludicrous, totally indefensible thing. I understand why McGregor believes that because he believes deeply in uniting with the people who brought him here, but I don't know why you need to believe that. There's no reason to believe that. There's no treachery about what he did. None, zero. And I also, frankly, find the idea that like someone said, well, he, you know, Team Alpha Male made him. I mean, this is a, this is an equally ludicrous thing to say. You know, this is a guy who was born with parents, parents who raised him with a certain level of uh, discipline, parents who raised him with a certain set of responsibilities he had to own up to. This was a guy who had a background in athletics. This guy had, this guy had wrestling coaches before him. He had wrestling partners before them. You know, this is a guy who, uh, one time Uriah Faber told me that when Dillashaw came to the team at, at, and throughout his whole time there, but especially at first he was ultra competitive. Like no matter what it was, he would try to win at it. So for example, when they would take a water break, he would try to race to the water fountain to be first to drink the water. You know, they didn't give that to him. He brought that to the team from all the different life experiences that he had. And more to that point, certainly training a team alpha male was, um, uh, hugely consequential for his life. He has said as much who could deny it. And training with Dwayne Ludwig has been hugely consequential for his life. Yeah. You know, uh, the results speak for themselves, right? But these are not brothers um, and you don't want to be too cold and too distant about it. But everyone's like, Oh, they're not just my teammates. They're my family. They're your coworkers and they can be your friends. In addition to your coworkers, but they're not your family. and Unless you sign some kind of obligation to them and that you, you, you don't meet those demands or you don't in some way intentionally hurt them by going to a direct competitor in some kind of way um, when you're not supposed to because you've made a certain set of pledges, everything else that you do above board is totally fine. It's totally fine. Look, TJ Dillashaw is the most successful guy to ever come out of that camp. And I think what happened, where he realized was, unfortunately, Dwayne Ludwig and Uriah Faber just, and whoever else could not get along. They just couldn't get along. And maybe Dwayne Ludwig... I, from what I understand, hasn't really, and what I can tell, hasn't really refuted any of those horrible things that um, Uriah favorite said about him, at least not in a very concerted and, and powerful way. But the fact is that TJ Dillashaw started a team alpha male with a hunger and a fire and a competitiveness, and they, they harnessed that, and they benefited from that as well. They benefited from him coming there, no doubt about it. They gave back to him. It was a reciprocal relationship. At some point, he kind of graduated past, I feel like, what they were unable to offer him without Ludwig. They just were. And then you, when you add in factors economically about him being paid to train an elevated fight team and still being able to work with Ludwig, it, it it's a no-brainer. And also, I just want to say Colorado is a great state. Like, I hate on most states in the country, but... Denver and Colorado. Are, I've been to the gym. He's talking about it is state of the art. They held the UFC. God, what was it? Was it UFC 134? What was Jones versus Rampage? Uh, was that 135? Hold on, I don't remember now. Yeah, it was 135. They held the UFC 135 pre-fight workout there. It's an insane facility. It's an insane facility. So you know, to me. This is in no way a surprise at all in, in that sense, in terms of when you sort of add the cost benefit analysis. And for me, you got if you're a fighter, your your body is your office and your your life is your is your is who you are is your business. You have 10 to 15 years to use that. You better use it wisely because when it's gone, you don't get it back. It's not like some franchise you can set up and then hand over to your children. When you physically decline, that is the end of the show. And this whole notion about, well, I got to be loyal to people. Yeah, you don't want to be unethical about it. And you want to be above board about your intentions. And maybe there are some hurt feelings because maybe Dillashaw told them one thing and, and did another. We don't know that to be true. In fact, no one has come out and said as much, um, you know, and I can understand there being some some difficulties about understanding that. I don't expect the Team Alpha Male guys to think this is awesome. This is not, from a training partner standpoint, good for their team necessarily. But these are not Dillashaw's problems. It's not Dillashaw's problem that if he decides to go to another team and it negatively impacts his old team, two teams that are not rivals, by the way. That's not something he is responsible for. Because if he is, then everyone would always be locked into any circumstance, no matter how poisonous or how much it slows their growth or stops it altogether. This is not the way life works. This is a very five-year-old way to look at interpersonal relationships. You are loyal to the things you pledge your loyalty to. If you join the armed services, you pledge a certain amount of loyalty. If you get married, you pledge a certain amount of loyalty. And there are other circumstances as well, organizations that you join and causes that you take up. But joining a mixed martial arts team to give to them and to get back from them these bonds, I understand why folks feel tightly about them, but they are ultimately work bonds. These are your co-workers. Maybe your friends, too. Maybe if you're related, there can be that as well. But to me, I think what you see there is, again, I talk about it all the time. All the time I talk about it on this podcast, it's the intersection of martial arts and prize fighting. From a prize fighting perspective, TJ Dillashaw's choice is obvious and without complicating factors. From a martial arts standpoint, historically speaking, the crionch culture, where you join a team and you die with that team, no matter the the consequences, that's what he's running into. He is running into an anachronistic way of thinking that is held over. And I frankly find the idea, I saw some people on Twitter uh, arguing with other journalists, saying, well, you know, I'm not sure this is a good decision for him. You're not qualified to make that choice. My guess is that TJ Dillashaw, who has managed to get himself from relatively okay collegiate wrestler to now world champion at bantamweight, I think he knows what's best for him. He has kind of proven that he has a good eye for scouting talent and surrounding himself with it. And while Ludwig may be all those things that you don't like, maybe TJ realizes he's really good for him personally. I can benefit from my association with this guy. you know. So to call him a snake in the grass – because you're alleging treachery is there, you know, to me is, again, I understand why Conor McGregor feels that way about managing his own affairs. And I think what he does clearly also works for him, but there's nothing wrong with changing teams. There's nothing wrong with changing teams after you become champion. You go where your best opportunity takes you. When it's all said and done, loyalty, oh, here, Bank of America, can I pay my mortgage in loyalty checks? What? You don't accept loyalty checks. You only accept cash? Oh, I should have gone to that team that was willing to pay me to train there. You know, So you can keep your loyalty checks, and you can go and try and do that. But you know, he is a husband. I'm, uh, I'm assuming at some point he'll be a father. He has people to take care of. He has a future to worry about. And John Q. Fan out there on Twitter trying to manage his affairs, like you have any insight at all into what's best for him, to me, seems you know beyond the point of ludicrous, beyond the point of ludicrous. There's nothing wrong with it. Doesn't make it not painful. Doesn't mean there aren't winners and losers. Doesn't mean I don't feel a little bit for Team Alpha Male. This is the best guy that's ever come out of their gym by far. You know, um, I, I I like those guys over there. They've always been easy to talk to. They've always been very professional. It can't be fun for them, you know. It's business. It's business. And at some point, as these guys start to make more and more money, they're going to begin to realize this. You know, and I, I don't know when that's going to be. And I also think, like, the economics of this is one aspect that's not being talked about, right? Why do all these fighters train together? Because they most of them can't afford to have camps that they bring everyone and surround themselves with, like in boxing. The economics of it force everyone together. And that creates a false sense of brotherhood. I'm not here to say that all the relationships that these guys have aren't real. I don't want to undermine it all. But clearly, there's enough of a false sense there where some people go, geez, how could you leave this team? Well, because we're in a business relationship. We can also have a personal relationship like you can with some of your other coworkers at your job. It's kind of what it is at its heart. It's an, you're not together because that's your best friend. And you're not together because you're a billionaire who could afford to have their own camp and can surround themselves with it. You're there because that's the best model, economically speaking, for the most amount of people. That's how that works, and vice versa. If It works the other way. TJ Dillashaw now economically can pay to bring people around him. He'll be part of another team, but you know it's not like he's going to be training with heavyweights or light heavyweights over there. He's going to be training with people that they bring in for him with coaches he pays and surrounds himself with. This is all economics. This is all... People aren't naturally grouping because they feel like that's the best way. I mean, there's obvious benefits to it, but they're naturally grouping because the economics of it makes sense. I can get good training, even though I get injured a lot, by being with these guys, and I can't afford this training like this under any other circumstance unless we all get together. So to me, being like, well, that's disloyal. Disloyal to what? economic conditions the very economic conditions that undergird this whole thing you know once you realize what why they're even there together what brings them together what takes them apart it's finances in a large to a large degree partly it's best practices in terms of training but once you get to I mean if you're like Canelo doesn't do <laughs> Canelo doesn't there's no you know Mexico top team, that Canelo is boxing in. I can assure you that he has people that they bring in, specially for him, specially for him because he can afford it. And if he couldn't, you know, maybe there'd be a different economic model. I also think it's the, the model of jujitsu a little bit and wrestling taken over where, you know, you naturally have to have those guys around you to get a little bit better. But again, it's, it's, It's a lot of just the economics of everything defining the consequences. And with that said, I hope he has a ton of success, man. It's good for MMA to have another team out there that's willing to pay guys to train, man. That's a good thing. That's nothing to bemoan. You know? These guys are desperately underpaid relative to what their actual worth is, what they contribute to the eventual product. Go get paid, man. Go get paid. And if they're really your friend, if they really like you, they'll understand. If you're really someone's friend, you want to hold them down so they can't make money so they can be loyal to your cause? I don't think so. doesn't mean you're not allowed to have hurt feelings. I think that's totally understandable. Doesn't mean you're not allowed to say god this sucks for me a little bit right now. Well how am I, I got to figure out a new way to cope. That's totally understandable. And that's and and, and and it sucks and I feel for those guys, but at the end of the day, if you care about someone, you got to let them pursue the best life they can have. And you got to let them make their own choices. All right. All right, Sonnen on Holmes. Sonnen has seemingly decided that to really go after Holmes' record for some reason, and even as I mostly just assumed it was Sonnen being Sonnen, I've seen numerous complaints about Holmes' record and abilities as a result. So I thought I would have to ask, if I have understood Holmes' background correctly, and if Sonnen's, Sonnen's criticism is fair, wasn't Holmes always, even as a boxer, more of a point fighter who truly excelled in distance control and whittling her opponents down slowly instead of being a power hitter? And wasn't that the reason for the intrigue for the Rousey fight? As while Rousey is righteously the massive favorite, she has never really fought a fight like home before. Yes. I mean, I think there's sort of two ways you can look at it. The divisions in women's boxing are incredibly thin. Um, Promotionally, it's hard to put together those fights anyway. Um, Whether or not you want to call them world titles, uh, I think is a debate you can have in terms of, you know, what is. there are very few world titles under the strictest definition of them. So there are many other world titles we've come to accept that even aren't as pronounced as the ones that she has earned. Moreover, she was two-time fighter of the year by Ring Magazine, albeit a decade ago. But still, um, I think that's one you can sort of look at and say, whatever you want to say about the world titles. She was twice named by, at the time, the Bible of boxing, um, the best female fighter in the sport. I think that carries some certainly some significance. But you know whether it's two world titles because of the Ring Magazine naming her fighter of the year, or it's 17 or it's 70, ultimately that's those are not accolades that, you know, that, that signal any kind of advantage in the sport. It's merely what you've accomplished in a different one. And to your point, um, the answer is yes. Rousey has not faced a fighter like Holm before. Um, and I thought her comments on Fallon were a – distraction is not the right word. But it, it signaled an understanding of who Hol- Holm is – but to me, I don't think she's going to be fighting home in the way that she sort of talked about home. She was like, "Well, this fight might go longer, and um, you know, I got to be more careful." And she has head kick knockouts. She has head kick knockouts, you know, at Legacy FC over relatively un, you know, or even thoroughly unimpressive competition. Um, she's not a power puncher, never has been. Um, not even much of a power kicker. She is a big stick and move kind of person. And so for me, Rousey's saying, well, it might take a little longer. I think that's Rousey maybe hedging her bets. But if someone is a stick and move person, you have to be careful closing the distance. A, you don't want to get tagged, but but B, you know, you don't want to get you don't want your entries to get timed and figured out. But the other thing is you don't want to do is give them enough space that they can use that stick and move process very easily. You want to crowd them, you want to take that away, you want to force them to make bad choices. You want to immobilize them. And so I think that clinch that Rousey always goes for will be particularly helpful in this context, but, you know, I mean, arguing about whether her world titles have significance. Look, women's boxing, uh, even today has been, you know, um, relative to the men's side of the game, just not even close to being equal, unfortunately. And that's not any of the competitors faults. It's just, there wasn't enough competitors or promotional interest to really push it along and develop it to a really healthy place. Um, but, you know, If you look at her achievements and what she was able to put into the sport while she was there, not a lot did it better than her. Very, 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 very few. She is a highly credentialed, um, accomplished, very capable boxer. Whether or not that's enough to beat Rousey, you can decide for yourself. I don't think that it is um, for the reasons that we've articulated already in terms of her punching power, but we shall see. All right. Unexpected outcomes of UFC 192. What was more impressive, Gustafson out wrestling Cormier or Cormier outstriking Gustafson? Well, it's a good question because both of them are incredibly impressive, but it has to be Cormier outstriking Gustafson because he didn't do it as pretty or even as varied. He did it by force of will. Like if you go back and you look at some of Gustafson's striking, he had beautiful left hooks to the body great jab behind footwork um his own great straight right he had a good a good left hook a couple of times like he had he just had a nice polish on a lot of his strikes you know but the problem is when you're constantly being pressured and you can't set your feet and you can't show your full arsenal even if it's a impressive one um you know, bad things happened. Like Cormier had the luxury of being able to say, I don't have to worry about my wrestling. Yes, he was taken down twice. Once he got popped back up immediately, the other one had to take him a second to get back up. So they were ultimately inconsequential, which is why I say Cormier. I mean Cormier outstriking Gustafson ultimately changed the course of the bout. It's the Reason why he won, right? Um but what was amazing is that like if you have that wrestling in your back pocket for the most part, right? I mean, he was the one pressing, right? It was Gustafson backing up. Um for a majority of the fight, then you're able to just be a little bit more open and even loose. And even I wouldn't say reckless, of course, but you just have a certain latitude and even singularity. You can get away with that Gustafson couldn't Gustafson. The one problem that he had with Cormier was he was kind of not reserved exactly. Cause he was letting, letting it go, but he's just limited when someone's pressuring him like that. Even if he got two of the takedowns or whatever, you know, he, he was just super, super, super limited and what he could show, and that was a consequence of Cormier just driving forward, driving forward, and you could say, well, that's a striking issue, and it is, but it's one where, you know, yes, like Gustafson took him down twice, but ultimately, Cormier's confidence in the footwork came from the fact that he, he never believes his wrestling is going to be overcome, and maybe it, it was to an extent in this fight, but if you believe that way, and you strike that way, and you fight that way, you're just able um, to move things along. You're able to just force things in a way and and mute, offensively mute somebody who might be more capable in that particular realm, simply by your force of will, backed by a, a degree of confidence from another phase, from expertise in another phase of the game. Kind of impressive in that way. That fight was incredible, man. That was, I mean, from the, from the that monstrous slam that he got to um, the dirty boxing to Gustafsson, against some of Gustafson's punches were so pretty, you know? and the two takedowns that he scored, or the one he only got credited for, but whatever. Taking Cormier to the mat, at least temporarily. Um, Gustafson, Gustafson, man, he's, he's his record is so deceiving, you know. I really feel like Gustafson, it, it's funny, you know. The best performance of Gustafson's career was what? It was against, prior to Saturday, it was the John Jones fight, another fight he lost via split decision. First of all, a couple things. Number one, couple judges see things differently, man, and Gustafson could have been a champ twice, you know, or, or whatever the case may be, a champion at least once. That's one thing to consider. I think the second thing to consider is um, he's got to be one of the best UFC fighters to never wear a belt. But the other thing that's interesting to me is that, I guess thirdly, the Jones fight was seen as aberrant. And I think I had said on this chat that, like, I wouldn't call him overrated But what I would say was we hadn't seen the same magic against Jones in a long time. And we finally saw it again against Cormier, which leads me to wonder if Jones and Gustafson fought again, would we also still see some magic? In other words, is Gustafson one of these guys? Now, he couldn't overcome the punching power of Johnson. Okay, maybe that's just a bad matchup. But generally speaking, I feel like Gustafson kind of fights. You know, there are guys that are so low level that he'll never lose to anyway. But I feel like, you know, he kind of fights down to a level when he fights Shogun. And then when he fights guys like Jones and DC, he fights up in, in competition. If you can't crush him right away with your punching power and your elite, yeah, you, better be, you better be ready. Because Gustafson's going to be ready. I can assure you, you know. So to me, what I wonder about it is I watched the Cormier performance and I wonder if the narrative between Jones and Gustafson was slightly oversold. I have been told over and over again that um, that Jones didn't train properly for that fight. And I believe that. So, again, I'm sort of wondering what a second fight would look like. But just the ease of the takedowns that he had, both on Jones and Cormier, the footwork. The, the, again, I don't think he's good at scrambling on the ground. Although he's not bad at it by any stretch. But he is like the best standing scrambler in the light heavyweight division, trying to get a hold of him for a takedown, trying to get risk control, trying to get double underhooks on him, you might have some success early, but he adapts to it super quickly, and then is a nightmare. And then he, he runs back to the center of the cage, and it's 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 back to square one. Like Gustafson's career is, it's hard to pin down because his best performances are losses, but they could have both been wins if a judge had seen them differently, and they speak to a certain. A bizarre inconsistency but one that is consistent in one way which is to say when he fights the best he, he brings it right back by and large uh good question the ufc press conference when asked about vtor's failed drug test to ufc 152 dave schaller said i think one of the things to keep in mind with this particular topic is any suggestion or inference that there was a cover-up in regards to that was categorically false, and then went on about TRT and basically deflected the question. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, there's still a lot they haven't really answered for. Number one, why wasn't Jones told? Was there some medical privacy law that we don't know about? Hard to believe that, given that, that as, you know, shouldn't that be any kind of information that would be disclosed at a, during a bout agreement or anything else? Right, I mean, I, I'm not sure under me- pri- medical privacy law you can shield the, an opponent from knowing someone is taking testosterone. That that seems to me not correct. So why wasn't Jones told? That's another thing. Um, I would recommend you listen to the most current episode of the co-main event podcast. I thought Ben Folks and Chad Dundas had an excellent discussion of it, making a number of points. By the point at 152 had happened, Nate Marquardt had already been jettisoned from the UFC for his TRT errors. Um, it's not like they didn't know what, what to do when someone was high or not high on, oh, if their blood their you know, the epi testosterone to testosterone levels were high, or if the free testosterone was high, again, he was at the high end of the normal range, but high end of the normal range sufficiently such that if they had been in Nevada, which at the time they had claimed they were following their guidelines, that would have prevented him from fighting in almost all likelihood. Former commissioner saying for sure they wouldn't have let him. So there's that as well. Um, and you know, I understand what they're saying that the TRT era is complicated, and we've pivoted it away. And I think, from a macro perspective, that's certainly true. But I also thought that one of the points that Ben Folks made was was quite astute, and simply saying like, the UFC just won't ever come out and say like, we made a mistake, we were wrong. They made it one sort of like that after the Kung Lee drug test where. Um, all the h- horrible things that happened he had allegedly tested positive and blah 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 and then they there was all these irregularities with the testing procedure and collection and he was eventually exonerated to a very large extent they had kind of said me a culpa then but but really not like they don't ever really come out and say uh, we should have told jones and there's a case to be made that he shouldn't have fought but here's why we let him fight he wasn't breaking any commission rule he wasn't breaking any law generally we didn't at the time we recognize the air. We recognize the air now at the time we didn't, you know? Um, and there's also, by the way, we still don't know how many other guys they knew and they were monitoring their testing levels. We don't know if they had previously monitored Vitor and he had exceeded the high end of the normal range. Maybe he had gone past even normal into abnormal, you know? So there's just all, there's just a bunch of unanswered questions. And I think Josh had said, I never argued there was a cover up. I just argued there was incomplete information. Right. Um, so, so I understand, I understand, you know, UFC, it's a, it's a complicated factor. I just don't know why they don't have been a little bit of error. Uh, maybe just because of the climate of the lawsuit, they don't want to do that. Although Vanderlei Silva has already used the situation for his purposes related to, um, his defamation lawsuit with UFC or him being sued by UFC for defamation. So we'll see where all it all goes, but I guess my long story short is, there's just still a series of unanswered questions, and there is just a missing response here up from UFC uh, uh, to fully address the, the situation. <coughs> Cormier's foot injury. It appeared to me that Cormier had some kind of foot injury to his leg by the second round. Despite the fact that I've been drinking alcohol all night, I was able to tell this right away, yet others around me were not buying the theory. I then saw a tweet from MMA Fine the next day saying that Cormier said, I'm feeling pretty beat up. I think my foot might be broken was this pretty much why we saw such a close battle? Not taking anything away from Gustafson, but I don't think for a second that a fighter ever plays like he did on the feet of the early foot injury. It's certainly an interesting question. To what extent did that limit his ability to drive off of it to get a takedown? But I, I don't know. I'd have to talk to Daniel Cormier to get to understand the nature of the foot injury. Could he not push off of it? I mean, cause he was still leaving his feet for strikes, but maybe level changing, like putting weight down uh, to an extent was problem. But like, you know, Cormier doesn't really like level change to shoot. He gets low. But he likes singles and he likes high crotches. Doubles if you give it to him. But he 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 just needs an underhook and then around a leg. And if you can get around your hips or he can get underneath your rear end, okay, he'll, he'll he'll do that. But you know, two of his biggest slams in MMA come from high crotch. You know, so so I don't know. The answers without understanding exactly how the, what the pain was doing to him, it's it's hard to say. But. Um, it's a reasonable theory, you know, why didn't he wrestle? I don't know. Let's see here. Someone's asking an interesting question here. What percentage do you give the give that Bader will be fighting Rumble next? Ooh, a terrible matchup for uh, Bader too. Um, fairly high, fairly high. I don't know exactly, but fairly high. True or false? The UFC will have sold out a stadium... three. Excuse me. The UFC will have three sold out stadium events in 2016. False. Are you liking FIFA? I'm terrible at FIFA. Oh my god, I'm so bad at FIFA. Someone says, are you a traitor for leaving Bloody Elbow to work for MMA fighting? If I'm a traitor for that, are you a traitor for... Uh... uh <laughs> I don't know if this even makes sense. Eating lunch after breakfast? Same company. Uh, Reed Dillashaw. Great fighters are built organically, not by average men in offices. There are lots of men in offices who are not average. Uh, Bloody Elbow had a good article on Gus going to heavyweight. Reach skill, and yes, but in your opinion, is he big enough to hang with the top five? Depends. I'd like to see how big he gets. Can he fill out? Because, you know, he has to change his body and his diet to, to make sure he can stay down there. But it's an interesting question. I'd like to see it. Okay, let's go back to this. The John Jones factor after the DC versus Gus fight, Jones put out some enigmatic social media and the folks got very excited. Has there ever been a time you can recall when a mixed martial artist who is not an active fighter has held so much charismatic sway at the levels of at the highest levels of the division? Well, Conor McGregor, right? Um, Fedor to an extent, but not so much through social media. Well, oh, you mean, sorry, who's not active. So Fedor, I would say. Conor McGregor's obviously active. Um, hmm. Lesnar. Just the guys who retired and people want to come back more than anything else. I don't know if you call CM Punk not active, but there you go. Uh, and is Jones returning against DC the only fight that it has to be arranged next? So I guess they might do DC versus Bader depending on the timeline. But for me, man, Jones versus Bader is like, oh, excuse me, jo- Jones versus DC2 is the, uh, I mean, how big is that fight? <laughs> that is a huge fight. One of the biggest fights that'll ever happen, certainly for the light heavyweight. You know, you've got the guy who, who, you know, Cormier's resume is phenomenal. Well, his only loss is arguably to the greatest fighter ever, whose career was nearly derailed by his own malfeasance and inability to manage his life and he finally mostly gets it worked out and here's the return of the king but he's not the king anymore because he lost his belt i mean can you write a better story one's a former two-time olympian the other by again might be the greatest fighter ever yeah i mean you just don't get a lot of opportunities like that to see fights you know of that caliber two guys who are of the most elite level skill two guys of elite athletic ability two guys whose resumes are as close to perfect as you're probably going to find at this level and this level amount of experience, two guys who hate each other, two guys who have history, two guys competing for, you know, legacy, two guys competing for a spot in the history books. I mean, it is everything. It is everything. It is everything times 10. You know, Rousey's fights are going to be amazing because she's such a huge star. You know her fight in Australia is going to kill because it's how how long we had like a month out and she's already doing Jimmy Fallon. Yo, she is going to break so many financial records, but she's not fighting her peers. You know her peers are in other sports, her athletic peers, and maybe she's peerless too. Maybe she's like the female John Jones. We don't really know because there's not enough peers her to test her. You know, but but she's not fighting like clearly she's not fighting her peers, right? Her athletic peers. But Jones kind of is a little bit, you know much more anyway um, and that's not rossi's fault understanding it's not she's amazing but she just doesn't have a lot of amazing around her or as much anyway she has some amazing around her you know what i'm trying to say um and um and Jones does man and and you know rossi's fight will probably be bigger from a financial standpoint you know certainly rossi's fight with cyborg would be different and, and that will be obviously be a real challenge too but you get where I'm driving at. Like she is such an awesome thing for MMA. She's such a huge, huge star, but I'm just talking about when you look at the ingredients, all the different pieces lining up about it being a real talent competition and about it being a grudge match and about it being for legacy and about two guys having impeccable credentials and history and hatred um, and a weird version of respect and every, every East versus West, like, Wow. Jones versus Cormier. People ask me like, what are you looking forward to? Nothing means anything until that, until that fight happens in my life, man. Like that is, that's all I care about. I want to see those two go at it again. And everyone's like, well, it'll just be the same thing as the first one. Really? Well, then let's just not have the fight since it's already been determined that you know what's going to happen. Yes, I agree. I would put money. I don't mean, I don't gamble, but I would certainly favor Jones to win. But dude, Cormier is a competitor. Daniel Cormier is a GD competitor. And John Jones has not had a huge amount of time off, but has had a weird portion of his life. So we'll see what happens, man. Uh, Did anyone listen to Dwayne Ludwig on Fighter and the Kid and come to any other conclusion than Faber was probably telling the truth about the whole story? Seems to me like... um, So when someone responds, someone did watch and says... Does it make him any less of a striking coach, though? It only showed me that Faber is unable to separate the core business aspect, Dwayne's proficiency as a striking coach, from all the other BS. Sorry for answering, but not really sure if that counted as a legitimate question for Luke. I I think the response there would be, look, sometimes guys can be such a distraction that it is not possible to separate from the business. And I think Faber felt like that was the case. But he is trying to run a business, and he is trying to be the head of a team, and he is trying to be a guy who has a lot of different priorities necessarily than TJ Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw is trying to make sure he becomes and stays UFC Bantamweight champion. That's it. Uh, up next Dominic Cruz or whatever the case may be. That's, that's his level of priority. It's a much, much different kind of concern. And maybe they just naturally gel better anyway. Faber just Favor not, not everyone gets along equally. And that's hard to deal with and understand. And that's why some of these teams can have really complicating factors to manage. But that's the situation of, uh, uh, that we're in. Dwayne and TJ have a different relationship, both uh, financially from a mentor-mentee relationship, and they, d- they are naturally agreeable. And that is unfortunate for Uriah in many capacities, but it's also life, man. You cannot police these guys. Uh, amazing Ronda Rousey-Holly Holm promo. What did you think of the new Ronda Rousey-Holly Holm trailer for UFC 193? Is this easily the best thing Zufa has released in history? I don't know about that. Thank God we didn't have to hear lame sounds of Goldberg and Rogan being edited in. So, yeah, there was a couple of things that I thought that was so good. Okay? Here's why that 193 was um, so powerful, the 193 promo. With, and I, let's include the one that's Rousey Anholm, uh, although Rousey gets the lion's share of attention, and the one that Ellen DeGeneres tweeted was also that one. What is what they released? It's a promo for UFC 193. It is a video that the UFC released to both advertise that an event is coming up with Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm and to get people excited about it. That's on its at a basic level that's what that is. It's an advertisement for their fight in particular, trying to get people to be interested in Rousey versus Holm in a more specific way. But it's it's more than all of that. There's a there's a term that we use in uh in media called evergreen content so for example if ufc 193 were this weekend it's not but let's say that it were, were one of the pieces of content that i would produce this week would be the predictions for ufc 193 and they would have a varying degree of value maybe their they're terrible maybe they're great by the way i did great at ufc 192 proving my point that when you do badly everyone comes out of the woodwork and gives you the finger and says ha ha but when you do well no one says a thing so Thank you for proving my point. Be that as it may, that content with UFC 193 on a Saturday and the, the days leading up to it with the predictions post, that content has to be timely. You have to match it with that event. There's content that we call evergreen content where you, not necessarily you can publish at any time, but you have a huge range in which you can publish it. You can publish it today. You can publish it a month from now you can publish it a week from now and in some cases the content will always be, just live there you know so for example one of our sister sites at the company vox.com they serve as like a wikipedia right wikipedia itself it has evergreen content hey i want to look up the history of johannesburg south africa they'll have a wikipedia entry there where you can just go look at it it's evergreen it will always be valuable there's always be a time when someone can look at it and use it and and have uh, have access to it right and there'll be moments where let's say there's um you know uh, an event in south uh, in johannesburg and it'll have a little more value then but it will always have some kind of it's it's evergreen content okay that promo is evergreen content but that's not even really the most important part the reason why it's evergreen content is because it's not just a promo for ufc 193 which is an event uh and a, a particular moment in time it is a story about women it's a story about female empowerment it is a story about gender athletics it is a it is a it is telling women little girls women of all ages really but especially i think that it sort of leans toward a message to the youth because that's sort of you know how the audience trends you can be whatever the hell you want to be you want to be a prize fighter you can be a prize fighter like you this this your life is whatever you want to make it and go do it. Go be brave. Go, go, go be involved. Like, so there's so many elements to why that 193 promo was so good. Nakedly, it's just a promo for a UFC event. It's just a promo for a Rousey. It's a promo for a Rousey fight. But it's more than that. It has a, it has a certain degree of sustainability um, because it has a social message. And maybe you like that, maybe you don't, but it's there. And that social message is one about inclusion it's about one of, um, again, female empowerment, women in athletics. And so it has just so many, it's so many different values there. It's the social message. It's how the social message becomes evergreen. It's the Rousey advertisement. It's the event advertisement. It's like it hits all these different levels of sophistication. And so for that reason, that's why it's good. And then I think on another level, you could say, well, why else is it so good? Oh, my God, man. How many times have we been saying less is more, less is more, less is more? Stop yelling at us. We're going to go watch cage fights. Like, we don't need to be overstimulated here. I don't need to drink an old-school Four loco with ephedrine in it or whatever the hell used to be in it. Caffeine, I guess. <laughs> I don't need to go take, um, you know, ephedrine-packed hydroxy cut, swig a Four loco, play you know, metal in the background and then go watch cage fights. Like I can do the cage fights are plenty of stimulation. I don't, I don't need a whole lot else. And so for, to me, it had this, t- it had this tone of like, not melancholy exactly, but almost like soaring imagery of, of achievement uh, and of achievement of, related, to, related to a particular gender through discrimination. You know, um, that to me is just so much more powerful. Less is more, less is more, at least from a, um, you know, a a, a sort of a visual and auditory standpoint. Um, Is the heavy lifting John Jones is doing likely to benefit him in the cage? Not I like weightlifting, not a weightlifting expert uh, by any stretch to me. I'm not exactly sure, you know, some of the stuff with the tricep extensions it's good to get a big arm Um, flat bench. I think there's some questions over the value of flat bench. Uh, Again, I I am of the impression that uh, incline bench is the best. It's a much much better measurement of strength, and it's, frankly, a much more helpful exercise. But um, someone else might know better. Um, Front lateral raises, I think getting strong shoulder development and the ability to not just getting it strong for max weight, but the ability to have it repeat the same function over and over um, before reaching fatigue is also uh, hugely important. But these are not questions that I can answer in any kind of expert capacity. All I know is I see a lot of donks out there doing flat bench. And not do an incline bench. And if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong. All right. Unless you have a shoulder injury or something. But if you have a shoulder injury, you shouldn't be doing decline bench press, which has a weak amount of value. And doing decline bench press is how your boy tore his labrum. That's how I tore my labrum. Doing decline bench press. All right. Uh, Fedor, was this who you heard Fedor was fighting? No, which I've already answered. God, thank God I didn't say it. I would have. Embarrassed myself. I mean, I, this is bad enough. Pena's victory. Phones blowing up. Pena's victory. While I was entertained. Ooh. Hold on All right. Well, I was entertained by Pena's fight with I. My being too harsh on Pena when I found myself less interested to see her fight Rousey after the fight than i was before it also do you find it in an odd way considering how how fights are sold that in the post-fight interview she not only decided to be more pc but also explicitly stated that she was going to be that i'm not sure what's behind that i don't recall her getting in too much trouble for her comments although um i don't, tried not try to extent possible to avoid drama storylines but okay I don't, I don't know what she said but um yeah, I didn't think this was her best. I, if you guys didn't see the Monday Morning Analyst, um, it's fine. But I, I talked about this before, you know. Uh, what this wasn't her best. This wasn't her best showing. You know, she won. And she beat a credential competitor, and she did a lot of good things. I don't mean to say that, you know. But um, she struggled a little bit in this one. You know, I thought her striking was a little bit robotic on the feet, uh, and a little bit just wide open. You know, kind of a square stance, elbows out with the punching. Um, and just sort of like, just kind of one 2 wanting it to, to close the distance, which is fine, but it just wasn't, wasn't very creative. I thought And on the ground, her grappling is great and she did a lot of things correctly to get out of some of the stuff that Jessica, I was doing like Jessica I doing the, you know, the armless triangle folks don't understand. Like, why does a triangle choke work? Leg scissors are differently because the legs are here and they're clamping down on the back of the neck and then the throat and closing the show there. Um, or you can get someone to go on their side. You can close the carotid, but that's a little more difficult too. Um, and you're also bending. So it's like an air choke. If you do it the right the way that Eric Paulson shows it, your leg is bent. So it's an air choke and it's a blood choke at the same time. Cause you're, you're making an L, you're making a V with your legs. And then you're, so you have a V and you're closing the V, but that's hard to pull off, man. It's not very easy to do. So and that's a different angle. But, like, why does a triangle choke work? A triangle choke works because you're getting choked from two sides. It's a blood choke. One side will be the leg. But the other side is you need the arm across your throat. That's what that is. See that? That's so I can see. That's that's how a triangle choke works. So you have their, their own thigh. Bang, here. So now it's pressing on this. The other one is the shoulder closing it. That's why when you see triangle chokes, some guys will reach behind themselves and then they might look over or keep their head up because you don't want to get your head pulled down. You don't want to get your arm pulled across, get your arm pulled across. And you get, look at me, look at that. There's no daylight between my chin and my shoulder. Boom. And then the other leg is here. I smack my teeth together. That's, that's your choke. You can hear how it changes my voice, right? There's, There's your choke. That's your choke. So if there's no arm in there, <laughs> there's no choke. You can't get enough, like your leg, you could say, well, you have the both legs here. Oh, okay. But your muscles to like, for example, you ever seen, uh, what was her name? Suzanne Summers would do the thigh master. Remember? And you, she would close her legs together like this. Like she would put the machine between her legs and she would close them like this. And you have machines at the gym like that where you can, oops, you can close your legs and then you can open them again. Your muscles to do that are not strong. Your muscles inside of your legs to close them, to bring your knees together, they're weak muscles. That's why when you look at the way Ryan Hall does triangles, what does he do? He brings the arm across to get the one side and then he rotates his body so that the leg is chopping down the back of the neck because your hamstring muscles are very strong. Think about how tightly you can bring your heel to your rear end. There's, there's a lot of strength there, but you have to get that angle out. And if you try to do that with no arm in, they'll just pop it off. So like the, the armless triangle, like when people try it, like if you want to use it to stop them for a second to transition to something else, that's different. If you're using it because you think that's going to be a choke, I don't know what to tell you anyway. But I mentioned this on the Monday morning analyst. Like, in MMA, I don't know what kind of passer she is or she wasn't accustomed to her, or she wasn't expecting it. You can be like a pressure passer or like a mobile passer. You know, a mobile passer might fake a toriando pass to the left. Someone tries to roll over and then they jump back to the right, you know, switching sides real quickly with a toriando pass. There's those kinds of people. There's people There's people like my favorite, Adolfo Vieira, who like to get into half guard. They'll get like the leg weave. They're driving their shoulder you know, into your, they're driving their head into your chin, they're pulling their gi into you, they're just flattening you out, it's a horrible experience, right, Um, and who pass pressure style, you have to do pressure passing in MMA, but the thing is, to get passing started from full guard, you can start from your knees, but it's risky, and it's not easy to break someone's guard from your knees, the best way to break someone's guard is to stand, you can pop it off, there's all kinds of things you can do, but when you stand, it's hard to keep control over them, right, because in jiu-jitsu, if I break your guard and we're no gi, you still are obligated to grapple with me because you can't beat me punching me. Uh, in MMA, you're not obligated to do that, and I, and I don't have a gi to keep you there. So I, she kind of struggled to me to seem like she had trouble turning the corner and stacking Jessica. Isley. There was a couple of um, there's a couple of stack passes that she had. When you do a stack pass, and again, this is a little bit easier for me to say, not because I can critique her and I can show her and I can be her coach. It's not what I'm saying. All I can tell you is the best practices I've been shown. And you know, doing it in a live fight is obviously much more difficult against a resisting opponent. This is not a lesson, but stack passes are something that like I like to do because I'm I'm big and I'm heavy. I'm 6'4". i I'm like two hundred and seventy pounds, right? So what do I like to do? I like to draw. I like to I like to make people suffer underneath. I like to crunch them. So one thing I like to do is if I can get double underhooks. Whoop! I'm picking you up. And she had it at one point uh, around the waist. Driving, well, not double underhooks, but driving around the waist, picking up the waist, and then driving into them on the back of their neck and their shoulders. And then there's all kinds you can do: leg drag from there. You can just turn the corner. You can do all kinds of stuff. Or if you're passing from the from the from the guard or even half guard, when you have one of their knees, you got to drive that knee into their face, man. Like you're not gonna put, you're not gonna punch them with it. But the point being is, like if you want to pass from full guard, and you got one arm out, you're trying to turn that corner, which you started doing a couple times. You can't just turn if their leg is away from their body. You gotta get their knee like to their shoulder, man. You gotta collapse them, and so I, I think she struggled with that a little bit. I think maybe she might be a mobile passer, which would explain why, right? Like, you know, if you're a mobile passer, you can just do a lot more things. I anyway, mean, long story short, with all that, it wasn't her best performance. You know, like um, I thought, I, you know, her, I will say this: I feel like her mount. She might have the best mount, um, or one of the best mounts in all of women's MMA. Like her, which you know, I mentioned before, mount is a bit of a lost art, and she's the she's got a very good one. Um. You know, not every performance is going to be your best one, though. Like the fact that she beat Jessica I is kind of a big deal. She did out-grapple her. She made a lot of good decisions to to, to find her base that Jessica I couldn't follow. Um, she had good reversals. She had good escapes. She did she did a lot of good things. You know, it just yeah, I think we're, we're I think what we're accustomed to is seeing Pena score a takedown, pass, mount, and then make someone suffer. And this time she fed, met, a, met a little resistance, and I didn't quite see the fluidity in the second gear that I did in the first. But maybe that's a different one that, you know, we'll go on. Someone's saying, thoughts on Elevation paying TJ to train. Do you think this has become the norm in the next few years? I don't know if it will become the norm, but it might become the norm for elite guys, right? We'll pay this elite guy to come train on our team because we can't pay everyone, but we could pay that guy or this lady or whatever the case may be. Someone says, uh, MJC flipped the script says, correctly i enjoy the idea that goofs on computers like you and me think that they know enough about two complete strangers interpersonal relationship to make a judgment call as to who is being disloyal to who it's the mma equivalent of having a strong opinion about brad pitt being with either jennifer or angelina (laughs) all right uh oh interesting question alexander gustafson is he the best fighter to have not worn a ufc title he is up there man He is up there. Um, Any Florians high on the list? I mean, I guess you can count Fedor. I think you mean people who have fought in the UFC and fought for titles and not won them. Um, Yeah, those two would be top two choices off the top of my head. Ken Flo and um, Gustafson. Oh, good question. Florian's comments on Sage Northcutt. What do you make of Kenny Florian's comments on Sage Northcutt? Could he be George St. Pierre times 10? Or he could be George St. Pierre divided by 10. To me, this is sort of crazy. Like, like And I, I took a little bit of heat on the Monday Morning Analyst for this because I was talking about it, and I was saying, like, look, Sage Northcutt is, I, I tweeted jokingly, like, I think the guy was grown in a lab. I mean, have you ever seen a more perfect specimen in your life His haircut's not all that great, but okay. He's got everything else working for him pretty damn well. He's friendly. He seems like a bright kid for the most part. Uh, he's (laughs) athletic to an insane degree has been training forever, has a positive mental attitude. You know, uh, he's got a lot going for him. You know, this guy hit the genetic lottery and I'm sure he's worked hard, but he hit the genetic lottery times 10. He hit the genetic lottery times 10 and, and has made a lot of it so far. So good for him. He, he's, he is earned, uh, you know, everything he's gotten, even with all the advantages, he still went out there and did all the work, you know? But like, for me, it's like, what folks have to understand is the UFC, this is a relatively new thing with what they're doing with him. I say relatively new because before guys like him would, if he wasn't as a popular of attraction or if they weren't trying to keep Bellator from signing guys like him, they would put him on the ultimate fighter or just let him get more experience or whatever the case may be. But what they're doing is they're trying to sign a guy early And they're trying to bring him along slowly. Now, he's obviously got a ton of ability. But the point that I made in in MMA, you just don't know about a guy until you've seen him put through the paces. It's the same argument I made about Conor McGregor. It's the same argument made about a bunch of guys. Until you have seen them, even when they look good through all the other scenarios in MMA, you've got to be a little bit careful about how you talk about them. And we have not seen him get cracked and have to recover. We have not seen how easily he gets tired because no one has forced him to get tired. And there are some tape, obviously, on the regional level to suggest his gas tank is probably great. I'm sure he trains hard. I'm just saying when you get a Division One wrestler in there who's just going to stay right on top of him, we need to see how he performs. Maybe he goes out there and blows the doors off these guys. And then we can say, okay, now we know. But until you know, getting out there and being like, oh, he, like this kid fulfilled the hype times 10. It could be George St. Pierre times 10. I'm not sure what Kenny meant by that exactly because, you know, Kenny maybe meant maybe he could be. He's got the potential to be rather than sort of saying it's a certain, it's a certainty because, you know, Kenny's a smart guy. I think he's probably hedging his bets a little bit, but just want to be clear about talking about Sage Northcutt. They're going to give him guys to help him develop his skills. They're not finished yet. This is not some 25 year old guy who can get a few more things better. The basically is who he is or 28 year old guy, whatever the case may be. This is a 19-year-old kid. His, we have no idea how he's going to how uh, does he get frustrated when someone shuts down his guard and takes him down? How does he deal with being cut? How does he deal with someone taking his back? Does he have good back defense? We we don't maybe maybe he does. I don't know. So that's the only point. The only point is like one fight at a time while he puts together some of the other elements of his game. That's it. He obviously has tremendous hand speed. He mixes, uh, from what we can tell, he mixes phases of the game well together. He has fantastic finishing instincts. So he's already got a lot of good things that we like, but against opposition that is very manageable, a guy who didn't miss weight, a guy who, um, you know, Francisco Trevino is a competitor who deserves to be where he is, but this is a guy who clearly has some measure of acclaim for the amount of weight that he lost. You know, we're not talking about other guys at a very elite level, and that's okay. He's not supposed to be fighting those guys yet. But until you earn your way up to that level and then start winning at that level, just got to slow down a little bit. Maybe he will be George St. Pierre times 10. Or maybe he'll be just as big as George St. Pierre. Or maybe he won't be. I just don't know. And neither do you. Let's see what else. Does Rousey have better striking than Holm in an MMA context? Um just to quickly revisit this for a second, she doesn't have better striking in the sense of what I think a lot of striking experts would look to and say, you know, look who has the cleaner footwork. Look who's got the better form. Look who's got a wider array of weapons. In that sense, the answer is no. But what Rousey does have, and she's not going to just fully strike with her. She's only going to strike with her sufficiently to then change phases of the game where she has a clear and distinct advantage. But I keep talking about it, and I think it's true, man. That pressure style still is valuable in the hands of a right, good competitor. And a good competitor like Rousey, who can drive forward on you, she might eat a couple shots, but that's okay. It's not awesome, but it seems to not be that much of a limiting factor. It just it reduces everyone else to ashes, man. It just opens up so much more. Because they, they can't really strike back that much. They can land one or two. And by that point, Rousey's in on you. And when she's in on you, uh, you know, we all know what happens. She closes the show pretty quickly. So I think that's the problem. Like, you know, if it was just a kickboxing bout, I don't know. I'd probably say I'd like Holmes' chances maybe a lot more. But in the MMA context, you can't divorce striking as the separate thing. The striking is an instrument for something. One, to land its own set of damages. And two, to foster conditions that make other parts of her game where she has clear and distinct advantages come to life. And so when you look at it in that perspective, who has the better striking? It might actually wind up being Rousey, which is to say, punch her way in, maybe eat a shot, but land a couple of her own. And then when the gable grip comes, that's when the show begins to change. Uh, Luke, will we ever see a fighter earn $100 million for a fight in MMA? Luke, will Connor, Connor be the first fighter to get Mayweather money? No, Connor won't even sniff Mayweather money. And that's not a knock on him. No one's going to sniff Mayweather money. Not Rousey, not Connor, not Cain Velasquez, not John Jones, nobody. Nobody is going to sniff Mayweather money. Do you know why? Look at the conditions that Mayweather, Mayweather. He bought himself out of his top rank contract so he could go and essentially be his own promoter. Signed with Golden Boy for a time. But what he has basically done is, I've said it before, I'll say it again, at every point of sale, he gets money. On pay-per-view, on closed circuit, on hot dogs you buy at the MGM Grand, he has a contract with the MGM Grand to only compete there, so he can get money from them, merchandise sales, everything, everything, uh, uh, gate receipts, everything. On what planet is an MMA fighter who currently assigned to any promotion, Bellator or UFC, going to get that? It's not going to happen unless there's a uh, a major change in the way business is done. The conditions that make Mayweather, Mayweather who he is are not possible in mma they fundamentally do not exist the market conditions so like this whole idea about him getting 100 million first of all that might be for like 20 fights you don't even know second of all it might not even be be true it might be one of these like gary tonan and morris contracts where it's like if you sell this amount you will get that amount so let's slow down here significantly no one will ever unless things change in terms of the conditions of how fighters can be their own promoters um and how their contracts can be structured, no one is going to make that kind of money, ever. Rashad's next move. What's next for Rashad Evans? Man, I don't know. Um, This was one of those uh, ones where I thought Bader was going to win. I wrote it in my predictions. Not that I was super confident about it, but it wasn't that I was super confident about Bader. It was that I was just really not confident about Rashad. Those two years, you know, Dominic Cruz was on the pre-fight show saying things like, well, ring rust is just um, mental, you know, mental weakness. And I'm glad he thinks that way because that will propel him to greatness. But I don't ultimately agree that's what's happening. Guys are, they, you need to be active. You need to be active. And more than you need to be active, you need to have your head in the game. And Rashad Evans has been hugely successful as a fighter, um, hugely successful as a you know business professional, having this career now to some extent anyway, and working for Fox outside of fighting, so he's got a lot of irons in the fire, and he's a really accomplished, successful guy. All that being said, that's not a recipe to have continued success in mixed martial arts. It's a very tough sport. It's a fast-moving sport, and if your competitors are training while you're not and competing while you're not, they will get better, and you will not you will get worse. That wasn't like the, that's the funny part about it. Like that wasn't even like the like status quo Rashad Evans. That wasn't even the Rashad Evans who was as good as the one who fought little Nog. And that one wasn't very good. That wasn't, was that one wasn't even the one who fought Dan Henderson. You know, um, he just seemed very diminished, very diminished by the time off. So for me, what I would like to see, cause I have, you know, I, I view him favorably. I would like to see him keep going and see what's left. But if in one or two more fights, there's not substantive progress, um, I I think it's probably time to call it a career. And that's okay. He's had a hell of a career, man. One of the best careers that anyone could really hope for. You you wore a belt. Okay, didn't wear it for very long. But so what, man? So what? For a moment in time, you were the guy. And you beat a lot of good competitors. You were in big fights. You made some good money. You were on TV a, a whole bunch. You were part of a show that helped launch the sport, second season of The Ultimate Fighter. Um, you know, one of the first African-Americans to headline your know, UFC show. It's a big deal, man. It's a big deal. Did a, did a lot, you know. So I'm not saying he should call it quits. I think I think there's still a little bit more he could probably do. But I'm saying if there's not a couple progress, there's not progress in the next year or so, you know, it might be time. Someone's saying who would you like to see him fight next? Gustafson, OSP, or Manoa?" Um, OSP or Manoa uh, padding records would you like to see the UFC go to the boxing route more often by bringing young and up-and-coming talent along slowly like they've done with Paige Van Zandt and to some extent Connor and Jones first of all how do they pad Jones like <laughs> comparing Paige Van Zandt and Conor McGregor's run in the UFC to John Jones's is such an insult to John Jones John Jones' first fight was Andre Guzmao. You may not think much of that name. Andre Guzmao came in with a ton of hype from the IFL. It was favored to win that bout. And Jones beat him, clearly. And that was a bit of a shock. And then he kept going and going and going. Like, he never got an easy fight. You can say the Stefan Bonner fight was easy. Stefan Bonner was still a relevant contender at the time. Jake O'Brien was very much highly viewed at you before UFC 100. And they beat Brandon Vera and Matt Yushchenko. These were all top relevant guys when he beat. He never, ever had a, oh, well, let's just, you know, give him somebody who we don't think can beat him, or this guy might wrestle him to death. We don't know what we're going to do about that. No, he would just go in there and smoke these fools. He left you no choice but to give him better competitors because he was smoking everyone they could throw at him. That is very different than your first wrestle, wrestling fighter being Chad Mendez at UFC 189. This is very, very different. And I'm not mad at UFC for doing that. John Jones came from a wrestling background and is a better fighter, frankly, than anyone else. Um, and McGregor comes from Europe where well, the wrestling tradition is not that strong. And he's a huge promotional force. And if you give him time, he might wind up being this huge fighting force. You just got to give him a little bit of time. Like, I think the strategy was smart. They did it. It's working. But to, but to say he had the same run early on, huh, you couldn't be more wrong. John Jones has been given tough fights from day one, and he has been smoking these fools like it's like they are half smokes down at Ben's Chili Bowl in D.C. The problem is they can't find enough guys for this guy to feast on. Totally, totally different scenario. 100% different. And Jones filled in against the Guzmán fight, if I'm not mistaken, on late notice, and he still gave Guzmán the business. And when he fought Matt Hamill, Matt Hamill was a top contender too. Not very top, but a very good, respectable one. Like this this no, no 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 no. They are not equivalent. To your point about that, about Paige Van Zandt, a guy against uh Sage Northcuts, yes. I don't want to see it done too much, but against a guy who's got a ton of promise like Sage Northcut, yes, it absolutely makes sense. Let's slowly bring him along so he can get enough training behind him, start putting his skills together, and when we finally have to move him along, provided he keeps winning. We'll have bought ourselves enough time for this guy to get better and to start making some, some awesome moves as a young and talented fighter and as a promotional force. Absolutely. That makes sense. I don't want to see it done too much. We're just signing a bunch of guys. But yeah, yeah. As a general policy, look, I think Bellator's on their heels a little bit in regard to that. But there's a rush to sign people young because guys are staying in their contracts for a long time. They don't have a choice but to do it. But just to be clear, you know, to some extent, Connor and Jones, no, no. I, just, I want to look at John Jones' record now, because that is such a ludicrous thing to say. Let me see this fool's record. I mean, are you kidding me? Hold on. Jones took the goosemal fight on two weeks' notice as a late replacement for Tomas Duval Okay, number one. So he beats Andre Goosemouth... Then he gets Stefan Bonner, wastes him. Then he beats Jake O'Brien, crushes him. Remember that? Reached for the single, then came around the back with the elbow. Then beats Matt Hamill at the time, was a relevant contender. Then beat Brandon Vera, who was the original John Jones. Then beat Matt Yushchenko. Then beat Bader. Then beat Shogun. Then beat Rampage. Then Machida. Then Evans. Then Vitor on testosterone. Then Chael. Then Gustafson. Then Glover. And then Daniel Cormier. Are you out of your mind? John Jones's resume is nasty. It doesn't get better than that, really. And he's 27, 28? Come on, man. If you don't know who, uh, who Andre Guzmao is, that's on you. But that dude came into that fight with a lot of hype, man. And an accomplished background. Crazy. Or me, i saying he won't fight at MSG uh, in April of 2016. Do you think he's serious or is he trying to screw with Zufa and even hold him up for more money with that comment? Probably in the end as most fighters do, they all relent in the end, maybe looking for more money or something else, I don't know. Or maybe he's just saying no, I won't fight in that place. He gives the champion he kind of holds the cards a little bit, but um I don't know. I don't know if that's going to work because April if they can get into April, the momentum there is so huge, you know, it's so huge. I don't know if we're going to have to see. We're going to again, these guys like Aljabin Sterling being like, "Well, you know, I didn't want to fight in Vegas, and he's desperate and takes a fight in Vegas. Now, Sterling's situation is not the same as Cormier's, but in the end, I wonder if it's just a scale of what they're willing to give in, not so much a question of if. And we'll see the same about Henry Cejudo, too. Paul Harris, messy situation, how it play out? Isn't he a funny situation? He wants out of your the of Fighting, and they don't want to release him. Why don't they want to release him? Because Beltor would sign him immediately. It is amazing because... Paul Harris is, like, bad for MMA in some ways. Like, like he should be suspended by a commission. Like, no doubt about it. And uh, yet he's good for World Series of Fighting. And that is a tricky place to be if you're World Series of Fighting. So I don't think they're going to release him. Rampage. Do we see Quentin Jackson fight again? Well, somebody messaged me saying that Jackson said something about the UFC... Um, uh, giving him an option to go fight in Bellator, finish out his contract, and come back to UFC. That's what someone told me. I've not read that anywhere. Did anyone else see that? Is that true? Maybe that's true. I don't know. But someone told me that. True or false? Gustafson would be a top five heavyweight if he decided to move up there. True. UFC 192 does under 375,000 buys. I, I think that's true. Rashad Evans should move to middleweight. No. Who's he going to beat? He's going to beat Jacare? Uh, I was jealous seeing John Jones deadlift 525 pounds. Dude, I don't do max deadlifts, or I don't do max benches either. After all the injuries I've had, you can you, go ahead, pro athlete. You go deadlift 525, by all means. Let's see, one more. One more, one more. Someone says, Jones is doing powerlifting exercises versus bodybuilding. If he bodybuilds, the weight cut will suck. Well, he's doing some powerlifting and some bodybuilding. Tricep extensions on a cable is not powerlifting. So it's not... That's just to get your arms nice and big. Should UFC dump the 125 pound division? So Todd Martin over at um, SureDog wrote an article, you know, not necessarily calling for it, but kind of like a, in a Jonathan Swift kind of tongue in cheek way, a modest proposal kind of way to say to dump it. Like the the fans haven't connected. If you move these guys to bantamweight, it would be a better division. Um, the gate receipts are terrible. There's nothing on the horizon. The one guy who might turn the corner in Henry Cejudo is far from an uh, obvious bet. Um, historically, in boxing, they've never really produced guys at 125 who are, you know, long-time major um, stars. Although that's not quite exactly true. Um, for example, hang on. For example, um, I think Donito Donaire be a yeah, Nonito Donaire would be a little bit of a challenge to that idea, but um, okay, I get the point. It's not like the biggest, most money-making weight class. And so there's a variety of other reasons. And then the best thing to do would be for now just dissolve it, just dissolve it, make it 135, and put the divisions together and get a super stacked bantamweight division. I don't necessarily endorse the idea, but I encourage you to read Todd's article. And then the one last one, and we're done. I promise. Do you give Rashad one more if it's a shame if Evans DC never happened? Yeah, you give him one more, at least one more. All right, I got to go. Podcast, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Get on there. Give a positive review. That would be very kind of you. You can email me at luke.thomas at SBNation.com. You can uh, give it a thumbs up on this video. You can um, tell everyone you've seen this. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. You can do a bunch of stuff. And then, of course, beat tomorrow. MMA beat tomorrow. And I'm supposed to pick up my new gear for this chat. My new gear. New mic, new camera, new light, everything. Everything. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Thank you so much for watching. I appreciate it. And uh, no big fights this weekend, but MMA beat tomorrow. And, uh, you know, good content all weekend. So until Monday. Oh, I guess it won't be a Monday morning. So I guess until next week. Stay frosty.